Let's pray. Father God, oh, we need you now. Holy Spirit, please come with your word. God, come. Affect us deeply so that we overflow into each other's lives so that the truth of your word reverberates from our hearts to the hearts of each other and out to our neighbors and our coworkers and our acquaintances. Oh, Father, we need you now. Please help us engage. There are so many distractions, both outward and inward. God, please help us to fix our minds on Christ now. Show us Christ. Pray in Jesus' name. Last week, I was talking to my dad on the phone about all the ways, all the different ways in which a criminal will try to cover his tracks when he's committed a crime. Well, that's weird. Why are you talking to your dad about that? Uh, my dad's he spent 30 years in the Houston Police Department, and uh, he is also now an investigator with the DA's office. So he's... he's seen his fair share of the seediness of humanity. And it's easy for him to, to begin to spout off all the typical cover-ups that criminals use, right? Uh, you know some of them, filing the serial number off of a gun or throwing a gun into a body of water, wearing gloves, uh, wiping off fingerprints, getting people to lie for the sake of an alibi, framing someone or setting someone up to take the fall those kinds of things. Obviously, there are many criminals who are better at this than others, but there is a lot to think about for the person who is trying to erase all traces of their involvement in breaking the law. Now, just as with any other career choice, there are some crayons in the box that are brighter than others. So, Some make it easy on the police. Some make it pretty hard on the police. My dad, in working with the DA's office, uh, works a lot of internet crimes, uh, mainly identity theft crimes. And he was telling me that uh, these crimes, out of the crimes that they know of, that the authorities know of, only 10 to 15% of the cases are solved. It's pretty low. In the age of the computer, the web, and the smartphone, these criminals can make themselves virtually untraceable. A cyber footprint can be significantly harder to detect than a physical footprint, and so they can almost be untraceable. Some criminals, especially in the internet age, could be called masters of cover-up. They've never been caught, and maybe in this life they never will be caught. And this kind of deception may be able to keep the police from kicking down a crook's door, but it does not change the fact that that person is guilty of the crimes he's committed. Whether or not he's been convicted doesn't change the reality of his guilt. He may not be guilty in the eyes of the justice system, but in the eyes of the Lord, well, that's a different story. Proverbs 5, 21 says this, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. All our ways are before the eyes of God. There's no pulling the wool over the eyes of God, is there? 
There's no deception that will throw him for a loop. He knows all, church. And, and though the authorities may never know, the fact that they were never convicted, that this person was never convicted of lawbreaking, won't amount to a hill of beans when he stands before a holy God on the day of judgment. There is no perfect cover he can create for himself. No perfect cover. He could change his name a thousand times. He could be like a nomad all his days. He could dye his hair, grow a beard, only pay in cash for the rest of his life. God would still know his guilt, even more than him. For him, there's nothing he can do, nothing he can do to escape his guilt. But there is one thing God can do for him. There is one thing God can do for him. Just because this criminal can't contrive a perfect cover-up does not mean that God cannot. God has provided the perfect cover for our sin where we are safe from his just anger. But you know what? We don't receive this perfect cover-up by trying to make it look like our sins aren't ours. We, we, we don't get that perfect cover for our sins by trying to make our sins look like they're not there by trying to cover them ourselves. We receive God's perfect cover for sins by our humble, broken admission of guilt. And then, listen to this, the transfer of faith from anything we can do to cover our sins to the perfect covering of the blood of Jesus. That's how we receive God's perfect covering by humbly admitting that we have guilt and we transfer our faith from anything we do to cover sin to the perfect covering of Jesus' blood. Today I want to talk about the perfect covering and what that means practically for the Christian. So turn with me to Psalm 32. As the elders have been given the opportunity to preach, I want to use this time to preach some of my favorite psalms. I never hear psalms preached as much as I'd like to. And so Psalm 32 is one I would like to dive into with you today. It's a mascal of David. A mascal is a psalm that is meant to instruct. And some have suggested that this is another psalm like Psalm 51, which David wrote in response to his sin with Bathsheba. But there, there doesn't seem to be anything in this text that makes that clear. All we know for sure is that David experienced great distress as he harbored his sin. And then great joy upon confessing it. So let's read the text together. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters there shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In this text, I just want to cover two points. Two points this morning. The deep agony of harboring sin and the soaring joy of confessing sin. Deep agony of harboring sin and the soaring joy of confessing sin. To start, uh, we're, we're going to go down to verses 3 and 4. I'm going to come back and address verses 1 and 2, but verses 3 and 4 are going to give us the, the agony of harboring sin. It's obvious from what David is writing that when we keep sin bottled up inside and refuse to bring it to the light of exposure, it produces feelings of misery, Right? Some have proposed that David is being just metaphorical here in these two verses, right? That his agony is not physical as it seems when he uses words like uh, bones and strength, but rather painting a picture of his spiritual devastation. That's, that's a possibility. But I, I don't see anything in the text that clearly conveys that. Plus, you and I know what a toll unconfessed sin takes on the physical body. Have you ever felt sick to your stomach because of your sin? Just sick to your stomach because of sin. Or, or maybe experienced shortness of breath and accelerated heart rate or, or sweaty palms because of your sin. In the past, the, the turmoil that unconfessed sin put my body through left me physically drained and physically exhausted at the end of a day where all I did was sit in front of a computer at the office, my body was, was sapped of strength because of the, the burden of guilt. Have you felt like that before? We, all, we have all seen and experienced the circumstantial hardships that come from sinful choices in life, but there is a, a heavy burden we feel on the inside when we've sinned and refused to confess. Our consciences are burdened, and often our bodies follow suit. You have determined in your heart when you sin that nothing could be worse than admitting you're that person. Right? That's, we, we harbor sin. We, we keep it below the surface. We cover it ourselves because we think nothing worse than admitting that I am that person, that person who thinks those thoughts, those person, that person who, who thinks and does those things, who desires those evil things, who says those things, who goes to those websites. We think nothing could be worse than admitting that I am that person, so I will cover sin myself. I will keep it below the surface. I don't want to admit that I'm that person. 
that will hurt. My self-esteem, my, my self-glory can't take that. So we keep it beneath. But when we do that, we start experiencing the anguish of what happens to us on the outside and the inside. When we don't deal with sin the way God prescribed. And praise the Lord for that anguish. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, The Spanish Inquisition, with all its tortures, was nothing to the inquest which conscience holds within the heart. I think that's true. I've never been tortured, so I can't compare it with that, but I know the effect of unconfessed sin. I know, I know that has left many a man and woman trembling. Church, there is agony David is experiencing here. It leads to physical agony. Burden, inward burden that leads to physical agony. And listen to this. This is important. David ascribes this agony to the Lord. He ascribes this agony to the Lord. He says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Your hand was heavy upon me. Church, we serve a God who loves us so much that even when we turn from him to so-called other gods, he doesn't let us fall headlong into rebellion. Isn't that great? He persistently made David to feel the strength-sapping effects of unconfessed sin, right, day and night, continuously, day and night. Why? So that David would turn back to the Lord, turn, return to the one who he was made for, return to the one in whom he finds satisfaction. He put his hand heavy upon him so that he would get back to God, so that he would get back to him. David was sensing something is not right. Something is not right. And God gives us our conscience, the, the burden of guilt, the physical feelings associated with guilt to tell us you need to get back to me. A few, maybe it was a month ago, we were down in Houston visiting my sister. And she had just had her, her first baby and we were down there visiting her and, and just uh, luring in God's creation and this baby boy. And well, on the way to uh, my parents' house at the time, we stopped to get some sweet teas at some fast food restaurant. And so we're going through the, the drive-thru. And, and you know what happens whenever you go through a, a drive-thru. You're, you're next to a building. Your car is right next to a building. And suddenly everything, every noise that your car is making that shouldn't make, you hear. It, it, it's, it's resounding off the side of the building. And you're like, wow, I, I didn't hear that before. What's, what's going on inside my car? Now, and so that's what happened with us. I had the window rolled down, and suddenly I hear this ear-piercing squeal. The brakes, right? And so it was, it was awful. I hate that sound of the brakes. It just makes you cringe, right? Well, I did a little research on you know, the smartphone, found out, oh, yeah, there's, there's this thing 
um, on the brakes called a brake wear indicator. And if you know me, that, that doesn't surprise you that I didn't know that, okay? Uh, brake wear indicator. And so the manufacturers put that there so your brakes squeal like that so you know I got to get to the mechanic. And, and it did the job because I had to get to the mechanic that day. I was like, I can't, I can't take this. It's annoying. And so I got, we, we got the van in. We got the brakes replaced. And I just couldn't help but see the parallel there. God is giving us pain, suffering, burden, so that we go back to him. Something is wrong. You feel that way? Something is wrong. And, you know, you'll try to cover it up yourself. You, you'll, you'll try to do what those criminals do. Find, try to find the perfect cover-up by doing things yourself, dealing with your sin yourself. But that burden is meant to get you back to God. Not to take matters into your own hands. The agony we experience when we don't confess our sins to the Lord tells us something about the severity of sin, right? Something is wrong. This does not feel good. What does that say about how awful sin is? It's worse than we think. I mean, church, no one knows the destructive nature of sin like God. And so he has us experience horrible feelings that correspond to our guilt to help us understand that it's worse than we think. But still, even with this agony, we will try to cover our sin. We will try to cover our guilt by ourselves. And these cover-ups that we use come in different forms, and they come at different times. Sometimes the cover-up is convincing ourselves that our sin isn't that big a deal, right? Either because everybody else is doing it, or, be, or because uh, we think it didn't hurt anybody. Right? It was a victimless crime. The other times, the cover-up is good intentions. I meant well. I, I, I didn't, didn't mean ill by this. I had good intentions. Or maybe the cover-up for us, as we try to deal with sin ourselves, is we say, well, well this, that was just in my head. It, it was just in my head. I didn't act on it. Or what about those times when we start comparing ourselves to all the other people that have done worse things, start looking at that person, that person, we can name all these people, and they are bigger sinners, worse sinners than I am. That may be your cover-up of choice. Or perhaps it's good behavior. This, you, you have this uh, history, this recent history of good behavior, so you say, I earned the, the right to blow off some steam, Right? I mean, everyone has to vent, right? So you, you, you're good, and you think that gives you justification for your sin because you had to blow off a little steam. Or maybe the cover-up is pure distraction, right? You stack your schedule so that those things that are urgent keep you from dealing with your soul. Still, the cover-up may be to blame shift. It's the fault of your parents, your job, your past, Right, your friends, any number of circumstances, or that's how God made me. What, what's your cover-up? What, what cover-ups do you run to, church? You know, we've been trying to cover our guilt and our sin since the beginning, haven't we? 
Look with me at Genesis 3, 7 through 13. It's a familiar passage, but one we need to reference nonetheless. Genesis 3, 7 through 13. Let me read. Then the eyes of both were opened. Right? They've sinned. They've eaten of the fruit. And they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Fig leaves as loincloths, hiding in the trees and playing the blame game. It's all hiding from sin and guilt. That's what they're doing. Covering sin and guilt themselves, dealing with it themselves. And even though we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our rescuer from sin, you and I still go running to fig leaves, don't we? Trying to cover up our guilt and shame. We do whatever we can to preserve our sense of self-worth, self-esteem, self-glory. So we keep working our way through these old cover-ups. But they're not perfect. We can't cover our guilt and shame. The problem is that those cover-ups leave us exposed. Kind of like a a grown man who's, who's snickering as he stands behind a tiny sapling tree because he thinks he's safe from discovery. You may be be able to cover your sin from other people for a while, but you can't keep it from the eyes of God. But, listen to this. Because he loves you, he lays his hand heavy upon you so that you may realize the wickedness of your sin and bring it to light. Bring it to the light of exposure. In verse 2, look with me back there at Psalm 32. Let's turn back. In verse 2, we're told, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And listen to this. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's that person who is blessed. In whose spirit there is no deceit. Right? Someone who is not trying to cover up sin themselves. Trying to hide it from the light. Trying to keep it from God's word and God's truth. Keeping it suppressed under The surface, the person in whom there is no deceit, but rather the person who spills it before the Lord. And and he says, spirit too, right? In whose spirit there's no deceit. That That means if you go to the Lord and you confess, this is not just saying the words, right? I've done this, I'm wrong. Just going through it like a routine. No, in whose spirit, meaning your heart, understands 
that all of your cover-ups are lies, that you can't cover your sin, that you are wrong, that God's, God's assessment of your sin is right, and that you need his forgiveness. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit, the one who's done covering up his sin because he knows there's a perfect covering in Christ. How do we apply this, this first point, the agony, the deep agony of unconfessed sin? We need to be grateful to God for the grace of making sin hurt. Hear that? Be grateful to God for the agony that he puts us through when we sin and we refuse to bring it to the light. That's, that's a gracious God. Saying, I am going to hurt you because sin is evil. And as you harbor that, your heart, your heart will get harder. It will become more and more insensitive. You will get farther and farther away from me. And I am the one that you need. I am the one who satisfies. I am the one that you're made for. And so he makes us feel pain. So we'll get back to him. So we'll get back to his joy. Praise the Lord for the heaviness, the burden of sin. Praise the Lord that sin hurts. Because if God didn't put that in place, imagine that. Imagine if God did not make sin hurt. There wasn't that indicator there that we need to get back to him. We'd keep going, keep going, get deeper and deeper. The gracious God knows what we need. And so sin does not feel good. Maybe in the beginning it does. But it leads to burden, misery, distress, so that we'll get back to him where bliss resides. Other thing you can be grateful for, if you experience this kind of pain, if you experience this kind of burden and it, it hurts when you sin and you, you have not brought it to the Lord in confession, that means that your conscience isn't seared. Ever think about that? It's like, man, this hurts. I don't like the way this feels. Well, good. That means your, your heart isn't as hard as it could be, right? Because sometimes we sin and we sin and we sin and we, we can't feel the weight of guilt because we, have, we haven't been going to the Lord and, and confessing sin. And so if you feel that, praise the Lord. It means your heart is not as hard as it could be. Be grateful for those things. Praise God for those things. Use them as ways to worship him. So now, seeing the agony, the deep agony of unconfessed sins, we, we see, secondly, that there is a soaring joy in confessing your sins. Not as a therapeutic exercise, right? Magazines, um, kind of like fitness and health magazines have said, one of the ways you can have a healthy life is by praying. Pray for a, a healthy body and a healthy existence. I mean, if, if having health is the reason why you're praying, if that's your end, something's wrong there, right? This is not a therapeutic exercise we're talking about here, right? It, but, but doing this, because in doing so, you are humbly admitting that you're wrong. 
and that God in his assessment of your sin is right and that he is the only one who can cover your sin. Go with me at verse 5 again. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We find here that David uses three words for sin. Three words. Sin, iniquity, and transgression. Sin, the word sin, uh, means to miss the mark of God's revealed will. Iniquity means a conscious intent to deviate from what is right. And transgression means, it's a reference to the rebelliousness of sinful actions. Now, why? The question is, why does he use three words for sin? And I, I agree with Sam Storms. This is what Sam Storms says. After asking the question, why do you think David goes to such verbal lengths to portray his sin? This is what he says. David does this to emphasize that every sin, any sin, whatever its cause or character, no matter how big or small, no matter secret or public, intentional or inadvertent, all sin can be forgiven. I agree with that. All sin. I mean, it's not just some sins. It's not just uh, these little sins or these respectable sins, right? The ones that the, the church doesn't really have a big problem with. It doesn't matter how big. You can't out-sin God. Right? You can't extend your sin beyond his grace if you trust in Jesus Christ. All sin can be forgiven if you're is forgiven. Here's the thing. You, you and I need progressive cleansing. If you're in Christ, then you stand in his righteousness, meaning God sees you as if you lived his perfect life because Jesus was treated as if he lived your wicked life, okay? So you're forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future, okay? But that does not mean that you do not need to come to the Lord and ask forgiveness for your sins, your known sins. Because there we, we get a progressive cleansing. Because sin, and I'll get into this a little bit more here in a minute, sin, as a Christian, it does not disrupt your union with Christ. You stand in his righteousness positionally before God. That's not going to change you. You're righteous before God because of Jesus Christ. But it does change your communion with God. It doesn't change your union in Christ before God, but it does change your communion with God or fellowship with God. That's why we must confess sin. That's why we must bring it to the light so that we can know God, enjoy God, grow and change, love God more, worship God more. That's what's at stake here. We, we need to be people who remember something about David in Psalm 51. I was reading through Psalm 51, I guess it was months ago now, but notice something. In Psalm 51, 14, David prays this. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. 
Deliver me, Lord, from blood guiltiness. One word. What's that a reference to? It's a reference to the murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, right? David takes responsibility for that sin. What was David doing, right? He, he gave the order for Uriah to be put on the front lines of battle so that he would be killed, right? What was he doing when he did that? He was trying to deal with his sin himself. He was trying to cover up his sin. He kept, um, that that whole story is a story about time after time after time again, David's trying to deal with sin himself. He's trying to cover up his own sin. And so here he's repenting in Psalm 51. And he says, "Deliver deliver me from blood guiltiness. He sees himself as a murderer. He's not hiding that, Right? He sees himself as a murderer. He's not keeping that um, under the surface. He's not trying to choose words that sound better so that he won't feel as badly about himself. He could have, right? He, he could have justified things. He could have made things sound better than they really are, you know, because he just gave the order, right? He could have said that. I just gave the order for Uriah to be put on the front lines of battle. I mean, I wasn't actually the guy that took him by the scruff of the neck and put him on the front lines of battle. I didn't put him there. It was my general. And I, I wasn't actually the guy who took the sword and, you know, and killed the man. I, I, I didn't take the sword. I didn't drive it through him. So look, my guilt is like three levels back here. He could have justified it. But here he's, he knows He's guilty of murder. And he doesn't hide that. If there's forgiveness with that sin, there's forgiveness for your sins. And worse sins than this, there's forgiveness if you're in Christ. Any sin, every sin, intentional, inadvertent, secret, out in the open, public, doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, all of it. And that's the kind of confession we are talking about here. Don't, don't make it sound better than it is, church. Don't try to reserve some kind of dignity for yourself or preserve your self-worth. No, you are that guy. You are that woman who thinks those thoughts, who does those things, who says those things, who desires those things. You are, you're bad. I'm bad. But that's a wonderful reality if you're in Christ because all of it has been forgiven. What's, what's holding us back from confession? Why, why do we hold back from telling God, I am a wretch, and here's why? When we can have the joy, the, the restoration of the joy of the fellowship of God and knowing confidently it's all been cast away from us as far as the east is from the west David was forgiven for this is there anything you could not bring to the Lord in full assurance of his merciful kindness church all known sin should be brought to the Lord in confession all known sin should be brought to the Lord in confession knowing 
that if you are saved through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, all of it will be forgiven, no matter how big or small. Let's make something clear. If you are a follower of Jesus, your sin does not affect that union you have with Christ. I've said that. You stand in his righteousness. Your union is not affected. It's your communion, your enjoyment of that relationship, your experience of that relationship that is disrupted. Your union with Christ is not going to change. Your fellowship does when you sin and you don't bring it to the Lord in confession. Because of Jesus, God never stops loving us. Isn't that great? God never stops loving us. But he does love us in different ways depending on if we're harboring sin. The the, the sin leads God to lay his hand heavy upon us. It's still love, isn't it? The hand that's heavy upon us, it's still love. He hasn't stopped loving us, but he's loving us in a different way, so we'll get back to him. Sometimes his love requires that he lay that hand heavy upon us, as with David. When we're trying to cover up our sin with anything other than Christ's righteousness, we're going to miss out on the enjoyment of the relationship that we've been given in Christ. We won't experience the sweetness of his presence. And that's why David prays in Psalm 51 this prayer in verse 12, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He misses God. He misses, he misses his God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I want to know it again. It's his prayer. He's pleading with God as he repents to draw near to him. Now, if you're married, this is not hard for me to demonstrate, is it? This uh, idea of sin disrupting the enjoyment of your relationship. When you married your spouse, you, you entered into a covenant, a covenant with each other, a covenant that says, I will love you and I will serve you all of my days, whatever mountaintops or valleys are in our path. So we made a covenant, a promise. And, and in marriage, if you're committed to that covenant, the covenant remains for you and your spouse when the money is there or when the money's not there when the health is there or when the health is not there. And the covenant of love remains even when the other person sins and therefore doesn't deserve your love. The covenant remains. The love remains. The love is still there no matter what, but that does not mean that your spouse's sin doesn't create a rift in the experience of that relationship and the joy of that relationship. Where there was intimacy, rest, and comfort, there is now standoffishness. There's awkwardness and, and that communication that's just short and terse and functional, right? Just, okay, what do we have to talk about? Um, the calendar, okay, we have to do this today. It's just like a to-do list. Let's get all that business done. That's what communication's like whenever there's sin in the way in that relationship. But when the spouse owns his or her sin, confesses it, asks forgiveness, and forgiveness is granted, then the sweet communion that existed before that sin can return. The union never changed. The covenant wasn't broken, but the experience of its blessing did. The same is true of our relationship with God. When we refuse to uncover our sins before him in confession, we, we don't experience his joy or intimacy. We experience the burden the hand that's heavy. It's out of love, yes. But there's so much more sweetness. There's, 
There is bliss in returning to him. We need that progressive cleansing, right? And and, and look at this. Uh, Notice this in verse 5. He says, I did not cover my iniquity, right? I'm not hiding it anymore. But look over at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So David's saying, I, I did not cover my iniquity. But then he's saying in verse 1, blessed is the, the one whose sin is covered. Who covered it? He didn't cover it. He's saying, I'm not going to cover it. So who covered it? God did. The blood of Jesus. God covered it. The perfect covering covers his sin. So he's blessed, happy. We remember 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When we walk in the light, that is, without covering our sin, without hidden sin, walking with an open and honest view of our sin before God, then we will experience God's progressive cleansing, which is part of our sanctification. We must humble ourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt us. But if we exalt ourselves, James tells us God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. Now, when a believer says this to me, I, I don't enjoy God like I used to. Or, or I feel like God is he's just my boss right now. You know, it just kind of feels like business. Here's what I want to know when someone tells me that. I want to know a few things. Are you reading God's word? Are you, are you studying God's word? Is he speaking to you through this book? I want to know if you're praying, right? Uh, are you praying to God both with praises and with requests? Are you surrounding yourself with godly people whose love for God is obvious? And I want to know, are you confessing your sins on a regular basis? Because I think... There are many Christians who think, I confessed my sin when I was converted. Upon conversion, I came to the Lord, I confessed my sin, said, I am wrong, I need your grace, please save me by the blood of your son. But then confession is over after that. It's a part of what we do on the way in. But now we're in, we don't need to do that anymore. We're already forgiven. Continue to return to him. We need that progressive cleansing. We need that fellowship. We need to grow. Confession is something that must continue. It it must be something we return to again and again and again. We must be characterized by repentance and faith, right? Repentance and faith, day-to-day church. Not because we're earning something. We're not, we're not, by going to him and confessing, we're not earning his favor. We already have his favor. But we want the sweetness of that relationship back. We want to glorify him and honor him with our lives because he has given everything for our salvation. And this includes the sins you commit against others whose forgiveness you've asked and received. I, I see this in my life. I don't know if you do, um, but I'll sin against another person, and 
I'll go to that person and ask that person's forgiveness. Forgive me for doing this. I, I didn't love you in this way. Will you forgive me? They'll grant forgiveness, but I never bring that to the Lord. I think if, if I've asked this person for forgiveness, I'm good. But sin, whether it's an, against another person or not, it's first and foremost against God, the one who made us. And so have you, have you sinned against a brother or sister and you've, you've got their forgiveness, but go to the Lord. Do transactional forgiveness with God too. Don't forget about the Lord. I often make that mistake and miss out on the blessing of it. Look at me at verse 6. David says, therefore, right? He's saying, my, my sin is forgiven. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. He's, now he's, he's turning to the godly and he's saying, what are we waiting for? What are, what are we waiting for? There's forgiveness with this God whom you have trusted. There's forgiveness with him. What are you doing? Go to him now. Why, why are you waiting? Why, why are you reserving this for a different time? God will meet you. There's, you're already forgiven before God, right? Positionally, you're forgiven before God because of Christ's righteousness. And you know that if you crawl to him in humble admission of your guilt, he will lift your head and he will lift the burden. So why do we wait to confess? Why do we wait? Is it because we want to get our spiritual life in order before we approach him? Thinking that things will go better for us if we do? I think, that, I think that's one of the answers here. Why do we, why do we wait? Why, why don't we go to him now? It's because we think, okay, if I want to, if I want to confess my sin to the Lord, I, I, I better have some righteousness about me. So when, when I go to the Lord and I ask him for forgiveness, he, he sees that uh, against the backdrop of good behavior. He sees my confession, and, and yes, I go to him, and I admit that, but I've got all this righteousness built up over the weekend, Lord. See? Does that change things? It's like a, a teenager who gets a speeding ticket, right? I had too many of those in high school. Gets a speeding ticket, and instead of going home to tell his his dad right away, when, whenever he is, has broken the law, what does he do? He's like, okay, I'm going to go home and clean the house. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I'm going to run the errands for mom. Then I'm going to send my parents out on a date while I watch my younger siblings. Then I'm going to fix the Buick and retile the floor. <laughs> then on Monday, I'll go to my dad. And I'll tell him, hey, Dad, got a speeding ticket. And against the backdrop of all this good behavior, he's hoping that his dad will factor that in and decide not to bring down the hammer of judgment. You know what we do sometimes with God? Yeah, I got I to show God that I'm not that bad before I go to him in confession. You are that bad. I am that bad. And that's why we need Jesus. And in Jesus, we're already forgiven. 
we're already forgiven. All our sins. You can't add anything to Jesus' atonement. He said it is finished for a reason. He said it is finished because he has paid all of the penalty for your sin. There is nothing for you to contribute to that equation. Nothing. Your response to this reality should be for you to humbly crawl to him in admission of your guilt, yet confident that in Christ there is forgiveness, always. Gracious forgiveness. And then after we have come to him in admission of that guilt, confessing our sins, we do what David tells us to do in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's the response. Blessed, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And that's you and I, if we're in Christ. Why do we hold back? Preserving self-worth, right? So we can... Reserve some dignity for ourselves? We're missing out. There's not joy in that. There's joy in Christ. There's joy in fellowship with God. There's joy in honoring Him, walking in the light. Hmm. Look at this with me in verse 10. I don't have time to go over all of the verses here, but um, look with me at verse 10 briefly. We see here, that steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And that is in contrast to the sorrows of the wicked, right? Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That's the covering. The love of God through Jesus Christ surrounds, envelops us. The perfect covering. Do you trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as your only hope for the forgiveness of sins? If your answer is yes, then you are enveloped in the love of God. Your covering is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, church, and you do not have to fear confessing your sins to God. If you come to him in humility to confess, you will never find his back turned. You come to him humbly, his back will never be turned. Do you want to know why? Because he turned his back on Jesus for you. So he'll always be there to lift your head and to lift the burden and to wrap you in his arms of love. Being ready for you to draw near to him. That's wonderful news. Rejoice, O righteous. I want you to remember this, though, as we're closing here. Remember this. You will never make a practice of confessing your sins if you do not believe that God does not count your sins against you because of Jesus' sacrifice. If you don't believe that, that Christ has already been punished for all of your sins and you are free, believe that, you're not going to go and confess your sins. So I'm, tell, I'm sitting here telling you how important it is to confess sins, but what you got to do first, what you have to do first is you've got to meditate on the gospel. You've got to remember what Jesus did for you. You've got, you've got to think deeply about the reality that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again for you, and that 
your verdict is not guilty in Christ, then you're ready to go and confess. Then you're ready. And see, if, if, you, if you're not experiencing the joy, if you're not experiencing the bliss of the relationship with God, and I, like I said, I want to know, are you confessing your sins? You say, well, okay, but I don't really see any glaring sin in my life. You're telling me that if I want to experience the joy of God and, and I'm not, if I'm not experiencing him like I used to experience him and, and I don't have the joy that I used to have that I need to confess sins perhaps, I don't, I don't see any glaring sins. It's like, well, sin and temptation are subtle. You could not have even realized you were getting farther and farther away from the Lord. The devil is a prowling lion. He's sneaky. Right? Sin is subtle. Um, we've said you don't fall far, right? It's a, it's a downward digression. And so what can you do? You need to do some self-evaluation to see where the sin is so you can take the sin to the cross, right? That's what, and, and so when you examine yourself, when you do a little self-evaluation, you need to see the sin and look to Jesus. See the sin and look to Jesus. Don't, don't get stuck down there in morbid introspection, Right? going downward and thinking only of yourself. No, when you see the sin, yes, grieve, mourn, but take it to Jesus. Remember your salvation, okay? But if you're having trouble doing that, let me suggest some things. If you're having trouble seeing where the sin may be, let me suggest some things to you. Remember, sins are not just sins that are active, but they're also passive, all right? Uh, sins are not just the things that you do that you shouldn't do. They're also the things you don't do that you should do, right? I think a lot of times we're just thinking about the, the active sins that we engage in and not, hey, there's all this stuff that I'm neglecting to do to honor the Lord. And so that helps, you know, there, there are things that we should be doing that we're not doing. We can, we can see that as sin and, and bring it to the cross. And remember, it's not just the things that we think that are sinful or the things that we do or the things we say are sinful. It's desires too. You have sinful desires that you need to bring to the Lord. Right? Uh, if you were part of the Pure Life Conference last spring that we did here at Calvary, Dan taught on that, how you have evil desires. You need to bring those and confess those to the Lord as well. And you say, how can I be responsible for that? I was sitting in church and this desire popped out of nowhere. There it is. Well, it wouldn't have popped into your mind or your heart if you didn't have a sinful heart. You need to confess that as well. Forgive me for that desire, desiring this thing more than you or that thing more than you. Also, it may help you to go to the lists of sin and the lists of virtues in the New Testament, right? You having trouble seeing where sin is in your life? Go to those lists. Ask, is that true of me? Do I do those things? Do I not do these things? And this is all not so you can do better, right? It's not just so you can, okay, I see sin. I see it's evil. I got to try harder. No, it's so you can see the sin. Take it to God in confession. Ask for the grace to repent. Remember that you're already forgiven and bask in the joy of the gospel. 
and then let that inspire you toward obedience and worship. That's what we're talking about here. And so go to the lists and then ask people who know you best. When's the last time you asked your spouse or your best friend, what do you see? Or what don't you see that should be there? Get into a habit of that, asking your the people that are closest to you, what do you see? I, I, my, my vision's not 20, 20. I'm a sinner. I need your help. And then you've got to ask motive questions, why questions too. Why did I do that thing? Because if, you're just, if sin is just a thing that, that takes place on the outside, then there's a lot of stuff that looks good on the outside that is motivated by evil desire or evil intention. Okay, So you've got to ask of your heart, why did I do those things? What did I want when I did that thing? Because it might look good on the outside, but what's going on in the heart? That's where you're going to see the, the, the root of sin. I wanted, I wanted respect more than I wanted God. I, I wanted pleasure. I wanted comfort. I wanted security more than I wanted God. I am a spiritual adulterer. That's what's going on in my heart. And so you, you see those things. You ask those why questions and you get to the root of, yeah, we're evil. But then we take that sin to the cross and we say, but he's perfect and he's, his perfection is for me because his perfection was transferred to my account through faith in him. Sin, we are that bad, we are that sinful, we are that wretched, but when we take that to the cross, we remember all that Jesus is for us, and the gospel is that much more glorious. So if you're having trouble enjoying God, those are some suggestions for you. Now, listen to this Spurgeon quote based on Psalm 32. This is what he says. He is blessed indeed who has a substitute to stand for him to whose account all his debts may be set down and in whose spirit there is no guile or deceit. He who is pardoned, that's us, he who is pardoned has in every case been taught to deal honestly with himself, his sin and his God. Forgiveness is no sham, and the peace which it brings is not caused by playing tricks with the conscience. See what he's saying? You believe that it's all forgiven? There's no reason for you to play games in your heart, covering things up yourself. You can deal honestly with yourself because it's all been forgiven. Your worth is found in Jesus, not in you. And so, you can deal honestly with yourself, with your sin, and with God, and you can believe this. Forgiveness is not a sham. That's what he said. Forgiveness is not a sham. Forgiveness is real. This isn't just something we're tricking ourselves into believing so that we can experience some kind of pleasure in this life until we die. Forgiveness is real because Jesus is real, and he really died. He really lived a perfect life. He really rose from the dead for you and me. Blessed is he indeed who has a substitute. Amen, church. Now, 
you may confess some surface sins because you think it may look good before God, like you can earn his thumbs up. But only the person who believes there's a perfect covering for his sin will spill it all out before the Lord and experience the renewed joy of salvation. If you're in Christ, your transgression is forgiven. Your sin is covered. Against you, he counts no iniquity. What's keeping you from confessing today? What's keeping you from running to him? Let the burden remind you of how awful sin is. It may make, make you run to Christ who paid the wonderful, the wonderful reality that is his life for sinners so that you could know him, know his joy, and rest in him alone. Let's pray. God, your word is rich. I, I hope that you will help us now not forget. I'm asking you, God, help us not forget. Please help us not forget. There are things that, that can draw our hearts away from you today. Our day will be full of them. But Father, may we keep you ever before our eyes. Be near to us, God, in our thoughts and in our desires. May you give us the discipline we need to talk about these things with each other. Give us the desire we need to talk about these things with each other and spur one another on to love and good deeds for your sake. I ask these things so you may be glorified. In Jesus' name.